When a hunting is recorded by a highly intelligent and thoughtful witness, and is carefully investigated by a distinguished officer of the British Society for Psychical Research, we have an example of paranormal phenomena which gives even the most hardened skeptic cause to reconsider his beliefs. Such is the case of the Cheltenham Ghost. This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to the Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and return to tell the tale. These are their stories. Around the year 1860, a fine three-story residence was constructed on Pitville Circus Road in Cheltenham, England, on the former site of a market garden. It was bought by Henry Swinhoe, an Anglo-Indian gentleman who lived there for 16 years with his wife Elizabeth, to whom he was passionately devoted, and their children. Then tragedy struck. Mrs. Swinhoe died, and her husband attempted to escape his grief through heavy drinking. Around two years later, Mr. Swinhoe married a woman named Imogen. Although Imogen initially had hopes of curtailing her husband's drinking, she became dependent upon alcohol as well, with the result that the marriage was a scene of continuous quarreling and marital violence. The arguments mainly revolved around the discipline of the children of his first marriage and Imogen's desire to possess his first wife's jewelry. Disputes over the jewelry became so heated that in an effort to save the jewelry for his daughters, Mr. Swinhoe had a carpenter pull up some floorboards in the front sitting room and create beneath them a small box in which the jewelry could be safely hidden from his wife. On July 14, 1876, Henry Swinhoe died. Imogen, who had left Henry and moved to Clifton a few months before, died on September 23, 1878, and although it is believed that she never returned to the house in life, she was buried in the churchyard of Holy Trinity Church, only a quarter of a mile from the house. The house was next occupied by an elderly couple who lived there until the husband died six months after moving in. The house was then to remain unoccupied for approximately four years. During this time, a gardener was said to have often seen a tall woman in black in the garden, and a woman who had once lived in the area later told of seeing a woman fitting the same description inside the house. The house was next rented by Captain Frederick W. Despard, who, at the end of April 1882, moved into the house with his family consisting of his invalid wife Harriet, four daughters aged 19, 18, 15, and 13, and two sons aged 16 and 6, 
along with three servants. A married daughter, aged 26, was often a visitor to the house. It was the 19-year-old daughter, Rosina Clara Despard, to whom we are indebted for recording what is perhaps the most complete account of a haunting on record, an account which was carefully investigated and deemed to be authentic by Frederick W. H. Myers, a founding member of the British Society for Psychical Research. Highly intelligent and possessing a keen scientific mindset, Rosina would, in 1895, receive a medical degree from the London School of Medicine, a highly unusual accomplishment at the time when very few women were allowed into the profession. It was little more than a month after her family had moved into the house that Rosina had her first ghostly encounter. I had gone up to my room, she wrote, but was not yet in bed when I heard someone at the door and went to it, thinking it might be my mother. On opening the door, I saw no one, but on going a few steps along the passage, I saw the figure of a tall lady dressed in black standing at the head of the stairs. After a few moments, she descended the stairs, and I followed for a short distance, feeling curious what it could be. I had only a small piece of candle, and it suddenly burned itself out, and being unable to see any more, I went back to my room. The figure was that of a tall lady, dressed in black of some soft woolen material, judging from the slight sound and moving. The face was hidden in a handkerchief held in the right hand. This is all I noticed then, but on further occasions, when I was able to observe her more closely, I saw the upper part of the left side of the forehead and a little of the hair above. Her left hand was nearly hidden by her sleeve and a fold of her dress. As she held it down, a portion of widow's cuff was visible on both wrists so that the whole impression was that of a lady in widow's weeds. There was no cap on the head, but a general effect of blackness suggests a bonnet with long veil or a hood. During the next two years, from 1882 to 1884, I saw the figure about half a dozen times, at first at long intervals and afterwards at shorter but I only mentioned these appearances to one friend who did not speak of them to anyone. After the first time, I followed the figure several times downstairs into the drawing room, where she remained a variable time, generally standing to the right-hand side of the bow window. From the drawing room, she went along the passage toward the garden door, where she always disappeared. During this period, as far as we know, there were only three appearances to anyone else. In the summer of 1882, Rosina's married sister, Frida, saw the woman. While coming down the staircase to dinner, she saw what she thought to be that of a nun visiting the house, cross in front of her, and enter the drawing room. 
who was that sister of mercy whom I have just seen going into the drawing room? She asked members of her family who were already assembled at the dinner table. No one at the table knew of any visitors, and when a servant was dispatched to look, she reported that no one was in the drawing room and no visitors had entered the house. Still, Frida was adamant that she had seen a tall figure in black with some white about it. It was in autumn of the following year that a servant reported seeing a woman matching the same description at around ten in the evening, but as a search of the house revealed no intruder, the servant was not believed. Then, on or about December 18, 1883, the woman was seen in the drawing-room by Rosina's youngest brother and another young boy. They were playing outside on the terrace, Rosina writes, when they saw the figure in the drawing-room close to the window and ran in to see who it could be that was crying so bitterly. They found no one in the drawing-room, and the parlour-maid told them that no one had come into the house. On the 29th of January, Rosina fearlessly attempted to speak to the phantom. I opened the drawing-room door softly, she recorded, and went in, standing just by it. She came in past me and walked to the sofa and stood there. So I went up to her and asked if I could help her. She moved, and I thought she was going to speak but she only gave a slight gasp and moved towards the door. Just by the door I spoke to her again, but she seemed as if she were quite unable to speak. She walked into the hall, then by the side door she seemed to disappear as before. I also attempted to touch her, but she always eluded me. It was not that there was nothing to touch, but that she always seemed to be beyond me, and if followed into a corner, simply disappeared. As to the feelings aroused by the presence of the figure, it is very difficult to describe them. On the first few occasions, I think the feeling of awe at something that was unknown, mixed with a strong desire to know more about it, predominated. Later, when I was able to analyze my feelings more closely, and the first novelty had gone off, I felt a feeling of loss, as if I had lost power to the figure. In May and June 1884, I tried some experiments, fastening strings with marine glue across the stairs before going to bed, but after all others had gone up to their rooms. I made small pellets of marine glue into which I inserted the ends of the cord, then stuck one pellet lightly against the wall and the other to the banister, the string being thus stretched across the stairs. They were knocked down by a very slight touch, and yet would not be felt by anyone passing up or down the stairs, and by candlelight could not be seen from below. They were put at various heights from the ground, from six inches to the height of the banisters, about three feet. I have twice, at least, seen the figure pass through the cords, leaving them intact. 
During the next two months, July and August of 1884, sightings of the Lady in Black became much more frequent. Rosina states that during these months, the haunting was at its maximum. On July 31st, sometime after I'd gone up to bed, my second sister, Edith, who had remained downstairs talking in another sister's room, came to me saying that someone had passed her on the stairs. I tried then to persuade her that it was one of the servants, but next morning found it could not have been so, as none of them had been out of their rooms at that hour, and Edith's more detailed description tallied with what I had already seen. On the night of August 1st, I again saw the figure. I heard the footsteps outside on the landing about 2 a.m. I got up at once and went outside. She was then at the end of the landing, at the top of the stairs, with her side view towards me. She stood there some minutes, then went downstairs, stopping again when she reached the hall below. I opened the drawing-room door, and she went in, walked across the room to the couch in the bow window, stayed there a little, then came out of the room, went along the passage, and disappeared by the garden door. I spoke to her again, but she did not answer. On the night of August 2nd, the footsteps were heard by my three sisters and by the cook all of whom slept on the top landing, also by my married sister, who was sleeping on the floor below. They all said the next morning that they had heard them very plainly pass and repass their doors. These footsteps are very characteristic and are not at all like those of any people in the house. They are soft and rather slow, though decided and even. Her footstep is very light. You can hardly hear it, except on the linoleum, and then only like a person walking softly with thin boots on. My sisters would not go out on the landing after hearing them pass, nor would the servants. But each time when I have gone out after hearing them, I have seen the figure there. The cook was a middle-aged and very sensible person. On my asking her the following morning if any of the servants had been out of their rooms the night before after coming up to bed, she told me that she had heard these footsteps before and that she had seen the figure on the stairs one night when going down to the kitchen to fetch hot water after the servants had come up to bed. She described it as a lady in widow's dress, tall and slight, with her face hidden in a handkerchief held in her right hand. She also saw the figure outside the kitchen windows on the terrace walk, she herself being in the kitchen. It was then about eleven in the morning. On August 12th, about 8 p.m., and still quite light, my sister Edith was singing in the back drawing-room. I heard her stop abruptly, come into the hall, and call me. She said she had seen the figure in the drawing-room close to her as she sat at the piano. I went back into the room with her and saw the figure in the bow window in her usual place. 
I spoke to her several times, but had no answer. She stood there for about ten minutes or a quarter of an hour, and then went across the room and along the passage, disappearing in the same place by the garden door. At this point, Rosina's youngest sister came into the house from the garden to tell them that she had seen the ghost moving up the outside kitchen steps. No sooner had the three sisters left the house and entered the garden than Frida called to them from a first-story window to tell them that she had just seen the ghost pass across the lawn in front and along the carriage drive towards the orchard. That evening, four people had each seen the ghost from four different vantage points. During this period, the ghost was not only seen by family members, but by a retired general living across the street, a gardener, a parlor maid, and a charwoman. Even their two dogs seemed aware of the ghost. A retriever who slept in the kitchen was on several occasions found by the cook in a state of terror when she went into the kitchen in the morning, Rosina recalled. Being a large dog, he was not allowed upstairs. He was also seen more than once coming from the orchard thoroughly cowed and terrified. He was kindly treated and not at all a nervous dog. A small sky terrier whom we had later was allowed about the house. He usually slept on my bed and undoubtedly heard the footsteps outside the door. On October 27, 1887, the dog was then suffering from an attack of rheumatism and very disinclined to move. But on hearing the footsteps, it sprang up and sniffed at the door. Twice I remember seeing this dog suddenly run up to the mat at the foot of the stairs in the hall, wagging its tail and moving its back in the way dogs do when expecting to be caressed. It jumped up, fawning as it would do if a person had been standing there, but suddenly slunk away with its tail between its legs and retreated trembling under a sofa. We were all strongly under the impression that it had seen the figure. Its action was peculiar and was much more striking to an onlooker than it could possibly appear from a description. The cat, however which usually stayed only in the kitchen, seemed to be completely unaware of anything of a supernatural nature. Following the events of July and August 1884, the sightings and ghostly sounds gradually began to decline in frequency until eventually they seemed to have ended. Captain Despard made inquiries as to the history of the house and found several people who identified the ghost from Rosina's description as being Imogen Swinhoe, an identification which made sense to Rosina due to the ghost being dressed in widow's weeds and the fact that the second Mrs. Swinhoe was the only person associated with the house who in any way resembled the ghost. Upon being shown an album containing a number of photographic portraits, 
Rosina picked out a photograph of Imogen Swinhoe's sister as being most like that of the ghost she had seen so often, and was afterwards told that the sisters were much alike. Critics have theorized that the lady in black might have been a mistress of Captain Despard, attempting to leave the house after a clandestine rendezvous, pointing out that the woman's face was observed to be hidden by the handkerchief held in her right hand. Such an explanation, however, ignores the fact that the same figure had been observed in the house during the years prior to the Despard's occupancy, and the fact that she was seen to pass through solid objects and inexplicably disappear when cornered. As time went on, the ghost gradually became less visually distinct in appearance. However, light footsteps were heard throughout the house as late as 1892, and the lady in black was seen several times in the front garden in 1903. The house, which still stands on Pitfield Circus Road, was at a later time utilized as a private school but the school was forced to close due to what was described as constant trouble from the ghost. Finally, it was turned into a block of apartments. A Mr. Thorne, a tenant residing in one of the apartments from 1957 to 1962, reported often seeing and hearing the ghost. However, his encounters were quite innocuous compared to that experienced by a relative of his who borrowed the apartment for a time in 1962. Without warning, the man was awakened in the middle of the night by a violent slap across the face. Then he felt as if someone was attempting to strangle him. He struggled to blurt out a short prayer and the sensation of strangulation gradually ceased, only to be replaced by horrific poltergeist activity. The bedroom door was ripped off its hinges, and heavy furniture flew through the air, followed by plumbing and lighting fixtures being torn from the wall and ceiling. Soaked by sprays of ice-cold water and feeling his way through the dark to the open door frame, he fled the house in terror, never to return. Since that night in 1962, there have been no further reports of ghostly activity in the house, at least no reports of which we are aware. This is Mark Lyon, inviting you to join me on the first day of every month as we explore more true tales from the Other Realm. The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and 
by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie, a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei, and by Windwhistle Press, publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and San Francisco Ghosts, by Mark Lyon.